This is Esculapius, a podcast that uncovers the human side of our healthcare professionals. I'm your host, John Neary. My guest today is Haley Beach. Haley is an incoming physician assistant at Monument Health in Rapid City, South Dakota. Haley received her doctorate of medical science and master's in physician assistant studies from Pacific University in Hillsborough, Oregon. Haley, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so can you give our listeners an idea of, of the, the duties and responsibilities of physician assistants and how they kind of fit into the healthcare workflow with doctors, nurses, and other healthcare professionals? Yeah, absolutely. So PAs or physician assistants, or more recently physician associates, are medical providers that can diagnose, treat, and manage different medical conditions for patients in a variety of different settings. Um, They can practice in hospitals, clinics, um, they can perform in surgeries with other physicians, and they work and collaborate with basically every other healthcare team member. Um, They work hand in hand with nurse practitioners as well as physicians, and PAs actually work um, collaboratively with an agreement with a specific physician and um, really they're a pretty integral team member. Can you walk us through uh, kind of like what was the trajectory of your PA training, like how many years, what your rotations were like and so forth? Yeah, so PA school is somewhere between 24 to 27 months, um, depending on what program. Mine, I believe was just around 27 months. And we started out with about a year of didactic or classroom work where we did a module-based focus. So each two or three week block, we studied a different area, um, whether it was cardiology, dermatology, um, endocrinology, and so forth. After that year, we had, um, we'd gone through 20 or 25 exams or so, all leading up to a cumulative exam, which allowed us to move on to the clinical phase. That lasted about a year and a half, where we went through eight different rotations. There are different core specialty rotations that we have to complete in order to qualify to graduate from PA school, such as emergency medicine, um, family medicine, internal medicine. But then as long as we complete those core rotations, we're able to choose a little bit what we want to focus our rotations in. Because I'm really interested in acute patient care, I did a critical care rotation in New Jersey, as well as um, an inpatient cardiology rotation in Phoenix. So after completing those, um, I graduated and was able to pass the board exam that is required of all physician assistants. I saw that um, in some of your rotation experience, you you worked uh in some rural clinics. Can you talk more about how, um, you know, some of your experiences in the rural clinics and how some of these uh, clinics are operated? Yeah, um, specifically at the program that I went to, Pacific University in Oregon, um, it was very focused on providing healthcare to rural populations. Um, And I was also in um, the rural healthcare track which focused on both rural and urban underserved populations that had limited access to healthcare. 
Um, so through that, I was able to do a few different more rural rotations, um, one in Mill City, Oregon, where I practiced in a family medicine clinic, as well as um, in the Salem and Staten, Oregon area, which is in Southern Oregon. Um, there, it's a totally different beast. Um, those providers are putting on a lot of different hats every day. So they, you know, not only are they acting as kind of general primary care providers, they're also looking at CT scans and they're reading x-rays and different pathology reports and figuring out which specialists to refer to because those patients don't have those specialists at the, you know, tip of their fingers. They have to drive two hours sometimes or more to be able to get specialty care. So as much as possible, those providers are doing as much as they can in these small towns with the limited resources that they have, which a lot of times um, can be very complicated. Can you elaborate sort of more on the, the, the primary care shortage? Why do you feel like there's a shortage of, of primary care providers? And, and do you think there's sort of ways that we can uh, begin to move that in the right direction? Yeah, so I think that this shortage, especially in primary care, has been going on for a long time. Um, I think that there's a limited desire for a lot of um, the new graduating providers, both PA um, and P and physicians to go into primary care. A lot of people go into medicine with a specific specialty in mind. And um, that kind of makes primary care, you know, puts it on the back burner. Um, PAs are trained with the general medical model. And with that, um, primary care is really kind of at the focus and at the heart of what PAs, uh, what the career is about. So I think that PAs really are kind of answering that call to, to address that shortage. But there are some issues that, like I said, have been going on for many years that I think COVID really has brought to the forefront. Um, some of that is that there are limitations placed on PAs, both from a legal and financial aspect. Um, PAs, like I have mentioned before, have to have a collaborative or supervising agreement in place with a physician in order to practice. Um, this is something that PAs actually over the last year or two, since COVID has kind of put pressure on the healthcare system that PAs are really trying to bring to the forefront and fight for something called optimal team practice. So that's something that PAs are trying to work on to um, address this shortage. Yeah, can you expand more on kind of that dynamic you have with the physician where you feel like on one hand, you need to collaborate with the physician, but on the other hand, it sounds like there's a movement to kind of give physician's assistants more autonomy. Can you speak to kind of, uh, you know, how that discussion has been going on and, and you know, where you see that, how you see that playing out uh, in the future? Yeah, so at the heart of what um, physician assistants do is collaborate with other providers, specifically physicians. So I don't think that there's necessarily any push to stop doing that. Um, that's absolutely still at the heart of what it means to be a PA is to collaborate with our physician colleagues in addition to our nurse practitioner and other PA colleagues. Um, I think that 
moving forward, something like optimal team practice, like I mentioned, is legislation that is trying to be passed to benefit not only PAs, but also our physician colleagues and patients. Um, so each state uh, makes these legislative changes on their own. So PA and advocacy boards in each state are working to pass legislation to try and help um, make the PA and physician relationship more collaborative rather than a quote unquote supervising agreement. Um, there are a few different pillars of OTP or optimal team practice that different advocacy boards are trying to pass in different states that, like I said, would help both PAs, physicians, and patients. Um, so I can go into some of those if you'd like, um, but in general, they all aim to kind of take some of that burden off of our physician colleagues yeah, so it sounds like at the core of it, right, that you want, that PAs want that uh, relationship to be like more collaborative than sort of like you said, like supervisory. Like what are some actual like things like day to day that you feel like, uh, you know, currently under like the law or, 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 you know, legal provisions that PAs need to kind of uh, be supervised, but like that, you know, instead the PA community is coming out and saying like, we can do X, Y, and Z, like, you know, without supervision as more of a collaborative thing? What are some of those like kind of either procedures or, um, you know, day-to-day -day things that uh, PAs would like to have more autonomy with? Yeah, so PAs um, in general, I don't see the day-to-day -day practice of what a PA can do changing too much with this legislation, legislative change, um, which is why so much of it is just kind of the, um, what's been put on the back burner, that it's kind of these headaches to change this different legislative process when so much of the culture and practice of what a PA does won't change very much. Um, so for example, one of the pillars of OTP is that um, PAs would be authorized or eligible for direct payment by different public and private insurers. Currently the way it's set up is if a PA in the hospital provides a service. Um, when that hospital gets paid for services rendered, it will be under the name of a physician. So that essentially makes what PAs do anonymous. Um, PAs aren't being technically paid for the work that they're doing. And it makes it really hard for PAs to demonstrate the specific value that they do have. Um, so that's something that if we can change that billing practice, for example, PAs will have more financial and on paper value to the hospital system. And that's something that I think will bring um, more coherent practices across the board rather than um, specifically physicians um, having all of the billing under their name, for example. A related discussion I have uh, was reading about uh, recently was um, like a more kind of technical aspect of the, the, the acronym PA, right? A term you mentioned earlier was physician's uh, associate. And I, as I understand, there's a movement um, 
for PA really to stand for physician's associate instead of physician assistant to kind of more accurately reflect the work uh, that they do. Um, but I think on the flip side, critics are saying that this might lead to some confusion among patients. So is this kind of a debate that you've, you've heard in the physician assistant community? And like, uh, just curious to hear your, your thoughts on, on uh, the acronym. Yeah, so the term physician assistant has been around since the conception of the career for decades. Um, I think since the career has you know started, we've evolved and so much of what we do is not um, as an assistant to the physician. I think that that term really limits the potential that we put on ourselves. Um, it makes patients believe that we are only as good as, um, you know, whatever the physician would like us to do if it's, you know, bandaging something or, you know, doing stitches, that sort of thing. Um, but the movement towards physician associate is that it possibly better represents the full scope of what we're able to do. So PAs are, um, you know, independently almost um, beyond, you know, the collaborative agreements that they have. They're seeing their own panel of patients in family medicine clinics, for example. While physicians might have to sign off on their medical notes, PAs are making those decisions. They're starting the medications that those patients need for their blood pressure, and they're referring those patients to different clinics for the specialties services that they need. Um, so PAs aren't just assistants to the physicians. Um, while any sort of name change would be confusing possibly to patients, I think that the sticking with a term that doesn't accurately represent the career is in the long term more damaging than having those short conversations with patients to explain possibly why the name is changing. I know you said you were kind of in tangent with, uh, you know, together with, with nurse practitioners as well. Can you kind of uh, compare and contrast a PA and a nurse practitioners and, you know, some of the things uh, that overlap between their roles and uh, some things that are different? Yeah, so nurse practitioners and PAs are very similar. They both fall under this umbrella term of advanced practice provider or APP. Um, some other terms that kind of encompass them are something like mid-level provider, but um, I prefer the term APP. So that's what we'll go with. Um, nurse practitioners start out as nurses or registered nurses. They complete that training and then have the option to move on from that career into um, the advanced nursing degree. One of the main differences between NP and PA is that nurse practitioners are trained under the nursing model where they focus on a more specialized role, whether it's neonatal nurse practitioner, family nurse practitioner, or psychiatric nurse practitioner, for example. They tend to choose their track that they follow with the specific populations that they wanna see and follow that training through the nursing model. Um, they complete their nurse practitioner training with about 500 to 1500 hours of clinical experience from my research that I've seen. Um, and their programs tend to be a little bit shorter, 20 to 24 months. Um, on the other hand, PAs are trained under the medical model and they're trained as generalists. So 
we don't specialize in a specific population. Instead, we're trained in um, every aspect of medicine, surgery, um, geriatrics, pediatrics, everything. And once PAs graduate after 24 to 27 months, they'll have around 2000 or so patient care hours, um, clinical experience hours that they can take to their positions. Um, whereas nurse practitioners start out as registered nurses, PAs do not have a specific field that they have to come from in order to get into PA school. However, they do have to have direct patient contact hours, usually between 1,500 to 2,000 hours of experience before they even get accepted into PA school. So the experience prior to school can vary between PAs and NPs, um, as well as the amount of experience that they gain in their programs. Um, but at the end, PAs and NPs tend to do very similar jobs. It can vary based in their philosophy of practice just because of the nursing model versus the medical model. But seeing a nurse practitioner or a PA, um, for example, at a family medicine clinic will often have similar um, patient experiences, similar patient results and treatments that are, you know, on the same level. Can you expand on, you, you mentioned the nursing model and the medical model, uh, just sort of what, uh, what you mean by those terms and, and uh, what the distinction is? Yeah, so um, the nursing model that nurse practitioners are trained under tends to be more whole person focused and can focus a lot on um, kind of those pillars of nursing of different patient care aspects. Um, as well as the specific track that that nurse practitioner might've chosen. So like family medicine or pediatric neonatal, for example. Um, the medical model that PAs are trained under is similar to what physicians are trained under, where um, it's more general and focused kind of on the entire aspect of uh, the medical practice and not as uh, patient or specific, specifically focused as the nursing model is. Uh, earlier, you, you talked about how, um, you know, COVID-19 kind of laid bare some of the issues in our, our healthcare system. Can you kind of, I know uh, you probably had a unique experience as a trainee uh, doing it throughout COVID. Can you elaborate kind of, um, you know, that experience of training during COVID and how, uh, you know, change your perspective on our, on our healthcare system? Yeah, it was very interesting starting my training um, when things were kind of quote unquote normal. And then halfway through my didactic or classroom training, learning about this novel disease that was kind of taking over the country. Um, it was very interesting to be taught from a textbook or from you know, the current research when I was in my classes. And then as soon as we were ready to go out into clinical rotations, some of that was just thrown out the window. Um, when COVID first started getting really bad in the summer of 2020, um, we were just getting ready to go out. And 
so many of our rotations were actually shut down um, and we had virtual rotations for the first six to eight weeks. So instead of training in hospitals or in clinics, we were doing virtual patient cases, which was really difficult. Um, I think we weren't alone in that, in that a lot of new providers had that experience over the last couple of years. Eventually, when we were able to go out into hospitals and clinics, it was a whole nother ball game as well. Like I said, what we were taught from the current research, so much of it was already outdated. And so much of the hospital systems were overwhelmed that we couldn't even follow current guidelines um, some of the time because we didn't even have the resources available to us. Um, elective surgeries were shut down, so those rotations weren't available to us. Um, we weren't able to perform some procedures or see some patients in the clinic. We were doing so much virtual care that I think a lot of best practice kind of went by the wayside just by, you know, the, the sheer back to basics level that we were at. Um, so it's very interesting to learn medicine in that kind of uncharted territory. How has the role of a physician assistant evolved at all during COVID? Over the last couple of years, especially when it was very bad at the beginning in 2020, um, states passed emergency legislation that allowed PAs more freedom to practice to help compensate for the state of emergency, really, that our healthcare system was in. It really put into place some of the pillars of OTP, um, the optimal team practice that I touched on before, that um, gave PAs more ability to practice to the full scope of their license. Um, and I think really this kickstarted the complete um, process in the PA community to fight for that optimal team practice and to really show that in the healthcare community, PAs are really necessary. And what we've been putting on the back burner that PAs um, haven't been practicing to their full scope and have been putting this pressure on um, other people in the healthcare system just by the, the sheer brokenness of the system, really we, we can't keep going with that model. So while I'm not sure if all of the emergency legislation is still in place, allowing all of the, the kind of um, the PA emergency supervision changes that have happened, one, it showed that it's possible and that it's safe and it's effective, which is really the best way to um, advocate for this change that PAs want to make that we've already had to do it during COVID. We've had to make these changes to the, the workplace environment and we actually did well and it helped patients immensely. And um, I think that over the next couple of years, there'll be a lot of really great changes that will be more permanent in the, in the career of a PA and, and how they work in the healthcare system. You talked about the the sheer brokenness. I guess we're, you were referring to our just our healthcare system as a whole, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Through the eyes of your experience, uh, you know, being a physician assistant, what like 
what do you think is just like working in our healthcare system and like what isn't working? Yeah, that's a really big question. Um, I think that there's a lot that isn't working. I think that there's also a lot that probably is working. And biggest of that, I think, is just the workers and their passion and the heart that they put into the care that they provide. I think that that's the main thing that I can say right now that our healthcare system has going for it. Um, and the heart that our providers have put in over the last couple of years with COVID um, really, I think, shows that that really they're at the base of what the U.S. healthcare system is. Um, I think that some of the things that are broken within our system have to do a lot with the policies in place. And um, some of that has to do with billing and insurance. Some of that has to do with um, policies that were put in place to maybe help prevent damages or problems with patients, um, but instead are hurting and just haven't been fixed yet. Um, and a lot of that that I saw, I think was kind of pushed to the side as COVID took over, but over the next few years, I think there's gonna be a little bit of a reckoning with some of the brokenness of the system. Sure, yeah. What, what, um, can, you, can you talk more about some of those uh, policy changes you'd like to see? Just, I can only speak from my experience. I obviously am not a um, expert in any of this by any means, but some examples um, that I saw. So when I worked in critical care in New Jersey, um, we had patients that would trigger what was called a sepsis alert. When a person's vitals, like their heart rate or their blood pressure, their temperature change within certain metrics, in the computer system, a sepsis alert is fired. Um, once a sepsis alert is fired, the hospital policy is that um, X, Y, and Z must happen within a certain time frame. They must get a certain amount of fluids, antibiotics, blood cultures, all of this work done within you know, 30 minutes to the next few hours, all of these things have to be completed. If they're not completed, then the team has a fallout or a failure. And that goes back poorly on the hospital system. Um, it affects the billing and the payment that the hospital receives from insurance companies based on their percentage of fallouts that the hospital has. And that reflects poorly on providers. Um, so in general, that sounds good. It sounds good that we should have this computer system in place that alerts us when a patient might not be doing well. And then we react to do these things that we know are evidence-based to help the patient. However, when I was in person working in the ICU, we would have patients that um, technically they met the sepsis criteria and the computer fired the alert, but for example, giving the amount of fluids necessary for a sepsis alert would have been detrimental to the patient. Or they were already on antibiotics for two weeks and they were just stopped yesterday and we don't need to start more antibiotics because that's not what is causing their vitals to change. Things like that, that 
while the computer is saying you have to do this checklist, the providers are using their medical decision-making to say, no, that's not what's best for the patient. Um, that still results in a fallout for the hospital. It still affects the billing and the amount of funding that the hospital gets, and it still reacts, reflects poorly on the providers. So while the providers are doing what's right for the patient, um, the computers and the metrics don't care. <laughs> so that's something that is broken within our system that is not an easy fix, right? Because it's a good thing to have those protections in place and to use the technology that we have to our advantage. But when the technology starts to backfire, it becomes difficult to manage what, when it is and isn't helpful. Yeah, and my, my own experience in healthcare it just seems like a lot of things, uh, especially, you know, in like the 21st century, for instance, like have been put in place that what we thought would make healthcare easier, but have essentially sort of gone backwards and, you know, make life a little more miserable for the providers. I know that's just sort of like a common complaint with the electronic medical record, right? That you, um, you know, it's a, in theory supposed to make life easier, right? We're taking all this paper out, we're taking all this, you know, we're basically putting everything on the, the cloud, so to speak. And um, in a lot of ways, it just adds for, for more headaches with billing and taking notes and, and all sorts of different things. So right. it, it, it's kind of like a reckoning we'll need to have with, with healthcare, right? To, to kind of take the best of, of both in that, you know, you need your, your human side of medicine, like you said, your clinical judgment uh, and your, you know, your, let, your, let your providers do what they do best, but also have sort of these technological toll booths, so to speak, where you can you know, make healthcare a little more efficient and streamlined. Um, right. I, I think something you've mentioned before that might kind of tie into this is like just sort of the, the, the burnout healthcare providers are experiencing. I think a lot of sort of the tech stuff in general can contribute to that. Can you speak to, I guess, specifically in the physician assistant community, um, you know, I guess, particularly even after, you know, everything that's happened with COVID, you know, is, is, is burnout something people is, is really, uh, you know, on everybody's radar? Yeah, absolutely. Um, burnout is so prevalent. I think, like I said, I went to eight different clinical sites and at every single site I saw burnout. Um, and burnout doesn't look the same for every single person. And, it can be caused by a variety of different things. So COVID has obviously been a huge physical, emotional, traumatic experience for everybody, um, but especially those providers that are caring for patients. And that burnout is something that I think is really hard to manage because we're still in it. Um, it's really hard to process trauma when you're still going through it. and I think some providers are to the point where they just don't know what to do anymore. Um, and I saw it when I was working in the ICU, when they would talk about their experiences with COVID. Thankfully, I was there when it wasn't um, at a very high level, but it was pretty bad in the ICU in New Jersey um, in 2020. And hearing their experiences and how traumatic they were and seeing the distance that they had from those experiences, just as they were telling the stories, um, it was very obvious that there was burnout throughout the whole entire unit. Um, I also saw it when I was in 
um, an Oregon urgent care. I had a rotation where we would see probably 80 to 100 COVID visits each day. A lot of those were asymptomatic testing visits, um, but they would still take up the majority of the patients that we would see. While that's not as like physically demanding or emotionally traumatizing, it's still very burdensome to have gone through the grueling school to become a PA and then go into urgent care where you wanna help people and have the majority of your day taken up by this one disease. Um, so that's something that I definitely saw an aspect of in every single place that I went. Um, the paperwork aspect is also really big in healthcare. Um, I think some places are really trying to manage it differently with having billers and coders do some of that work. But in family medicine, for example, we had to bill our own patients and, and put the codes to the work that we did. And that took up time. I would say about a third, at least of the time that providers spend is based on in paperwork. Just to, just to kind of expand on the burnout, do you feel like you've like experienced burnout? And like, if so, like what, what is that experience like if you're explaining it to somebody? Yeah, I think in school, definitely, um, I felt burnout and then also <laughs> doing school while in a global pandemic, I think added to that. And I think, um, like I said, it looks different for everybody, but a way that I could describe it is feeling um, just very tired, feeling very emotionally um, numb. And I think some of that is a protective mechanism um, that, like I said, when you're going through trauma, it's hard to process it. So you block it all out and um, you protect yourself by being numb to it. But that can be detrimental, not only personally, but also for patient care. And I think that's why it's been so dangerous um, over the last couple of years with all of these providers and nurses and everyone being burnt out that not only are these people suffering, the people that we care about in the healthcare system, but also the patients that they're treating and caring for, because it's hard to be caring for others when you um, really need to be giving that care to yourself. So um, like I said, it looks different for everyone, but I think becoming numb and worn down just in every aspect is a pretty common theme. I know as a part of your training, you also earned a, a doctorate of, of medical science. Can you talk about how that complements your, your PA training, whether that's sort of a common uh, credential for people to have, or is that, uh, was that kind of unique to your program? And, you know, how has that kind of expanded the scope of your practice? Yeah, it's very new, actually. Um, only you know, less than 5% of PAs, I believe, definitely less than 10% of PAs have a doctorate degree. Uh, nearly every PA program is a master's of science program. Um, and it's relatively new over the last probably five to 10 years for PAs to start 
expanding their training to earn doctorate of medical science degrees. My program at Pacific University just recently started up this doctoral program and um, offered it to our class for um, kind of an addition to our master's training. So I decided to do that. Um, it really focused on more the business side of medicine and leadership training. Um, so being able to be more of a leader on a team and get into the, the business side of um, what it takes to be in the medical field is a lot of what we talked about. And we also did a big um, thesis sort of paper on um, different diversity, equity, and inclusion practices was really the other half of what our program was about. Um, so for that, I chose um, to focus on different races, different racial groups, and what um, issues they were facing and inequality they were facing in the healthcare system and how we could potentially um, change that and improve those different inequalities um, is something that I really kind of did some deep research into. So like I said, it's relatively new for PAs, but I think that's the direction that the career is headed. Last thing I'd, I'd love to hear more about is just, um, I know you said you're, you're gonna be an incoming PA uh, at Monument Health in uh, Rapid City, South Dakota. So um, can you just talk about, you know, uh, what you're looking forward to in that role, what kind of community Rapid City is in terms of their, their healthcare setup and so forth? Yeah, so Monument Health is the only hospital in Rapid City. Rapid City is a city of about 75 to 80,000 um, in Western South Dakota. And Monument is really the only hospital, major hospital um, that serves basically the five state region around South Dakota. It's a big catch basin for a lot of different um, patients and those with more serious conditions that um, you know, their smaller town hospitals can't handle. Um, I will be working as a hospitalist um, in the nighttime, so a nocturnist, where I'll basically be acting as a primary care provider for inpatients. So um, seeing those that are admitted to the hospital and have concerns overnight that need to be addressed more immediately is what I'll be there for. Um, like I said, since it is the major hospital for a very large group of people, it, it sees a lot of more complex and high acuity patients that um, smaller hospitals or even those in bigger cities with multiple different hospitals won't have. So I'm excited to see that high acuity of patients and use my critical thinking skills to figure out what's best for patient care. Right on. Good for you. That sounds like it's going to be a good fit. So I'm super pumped for you and uh, definitely looking forward to hearing about all the cool things you're going to be doing. Yeah, thank you. I'm very excited. So it's time for a lightning round, a series of fast-paced questions that tell us more about you. Okay. So uh, first, uh, what is your ideal Friday night? Oh, my ideal Friday night would be 
going to see a movie and having movie theater popcorn and then probably coming home to do a face mask and go to sleep early. <laughs> nice. Uh, who is your celebrity crush? Celebrity crush. Hmm. I really like Ewan McGregor. He was in um, Star Wars. Star Wars. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. What's your least favorite food? Mm, I don't really like seafood at all. Really? Yeah. I guess, I guess there's not much seafood out in South Dakota, right? Right. Yeah. Any <laughs> seafood here is not a good experience. Uh, what's your favorite holiday? Uh, I really like Christmas. And what is the best part of being a PA? I think getting to form relationships with different people and just learn from other people and, and all the variety of people that you meet as a provider, you see and care for so many different types of people that it keeps every day interesting. Ailey Beach, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you so much. That concludes this episode of Esculapius. Till next time, I'm your host, John Neary. Be well.